Uh, I decided to preach one more sermon related to Advent this year. Uh, This time not to focus on the coming of Jesus in a manger, but on the future Advent of our, our Lord Jesus Christ, to focus on the return of the King. And I actually began this sermon four years ago. I know it's hard to believe, but I was scheduled to preach it at a, a young PCA church in, in North Kansas City on December 26, 2010. Uh, but this huge snowstorm came into town, and it, and it hit late in the week, Thursday or something like that. And it, and it basically it would be no problem up north, but in Kansas City it shut the whole town down, uh, and they canceled that service. And so I never finished this sermon, but uh, I was excited about it at the time, and I remembered it when we got to this point in the year this year and thought, well, I'm going to finish that. And yet this week, as I pulled out my notes and I began to look at them, it was almost like that feeling you get if you've ever been in Mexico and you drive up on one of those, those cinder block houses that are partially built and there's uh, rebar sticking out all over the place. And, and it's that, that half-finished kind of thing. And so I open up to my notes and I look at this and I'm like, okay. So uh, this week anyway, it was a, a joy to just get a bunch more cinder blocks and start putting this back together. So you got your Bibles with you. Open up to Romans. We're going to be in chapter 8. Verses 18 to 25 today. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be there. If not, it is printed in the bulletin for you, and you can follow along that way. Romans 8, beginning in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The grass withers and the flower fades. So last week we saw the the love of God. We saw the love of God in his presence and his provision of a a savior and and his keeping of a promise. We saw how fear is destroyed when we trust our savior's love for us. Well, today, as I mentioned before, we're looking forward. Forward to the second advent, the second coming of Christ. We may have many fears about this. uh, Doubts that it will happen. Anxiety regarding our own death or about our own future resurrection. And and what will take that fear away is trust. Trusting that our God, who has kept his promises in the past, will continue to keep his promises and once again keep this promise in the future. Looking back, we trust that Jesus did come, that he did die on the cross for our sin, that God resurrected Jesus from the grave. Looking forward now, we We trust that Jesus will come again and and raise us to new life. And this waiting is is not always easy. Yet, we do live in the waiting. Waiting for Jesus to finally do away with sin completely, to set all things right. Now, before we get to the text, I 
I want to make clear what we're not attempting to do today. When, here's the reason. When I was a very new believer, I became a believer in, in, in high school as a teenager, and I attended a church where they taught with these amazingly detailed charts every detail of what Christ's return was going to look like. They had this whole list of who the Antichrist was going to be. Uh, we were told that they'd show us in Scripture, this is for sure a black hawk is what it's talking about here. Russia was the bear from, from the book of Daniel that was speaking of. They had every single detail figured out except for the exact moment that Jesus was going to return. And we were told, guaranteed, that Jesus would return in our lifetime. Maybe some of you experienced something like this. Uh, but what happened in my life was it didn't take long for me to see those predictions weren't coming true. The countries they were worried about began to fail and so on. And it left this sense in my understanding that somehow the Bible was wrong in its prediction. But the Word of God is, is never wrong. And slowly I, I came to realize that this gross misteaching went beyond what God had actually revealed in the text of Scripture. This evening I hope that the Word of God will stir you, will stir a hope and an eager expectation for Christ's return in your life in our life, what it will ultimately accomplish in our life. Uh, we live in a time where we look back, and the truth is we get to see so much of what God has done in redemptive history. Uh, but church, there is so much more to be accomplished that God plans to do. And so while we will not attempt to predict the time or the details of Christ's return this evening, we will look at the promises of God in Scripture, uh, both of Christ's return and of what that return will result in our lives and the world around us. So the theme of this passage, if you were to look at the entire passage, is certainly the believer's future glory. Uh, since we have not reached the crescendo of redemptive history, we are to wait patiently. Let's start looking at Romans 8.18. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present, present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I love here that Paul doesn't bother to try to, to hide this truth that Christians suffer. We face all the same sufferings unbelievers face. Health issues, relationship struggles, temptations towards sin, pain and tears as loved ones pass away. Last week when I accidentally smashed my finger with a hammer, I wasn't shocked at the pain radiating through my finger. At no point did I think to myself, I am a Christian, I, I shouldn't have this pain. And what we see in, in this verse is this contrast between current suffering and future glory. For Paul, this is really no small statement. And you remember, Paul also wrote 2 Corinthians 11, 24 through 28, where he shares this about his life. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Paul knows suffering. And so in our text today, he says, the suffering of today is not worth comparing to the future glory. He does so with an understanding of what real pain and real hope is. And that is viewed towards something wonderful coming over the horizon. 
Uh, some years ago, I, I taught a freshman Bible class, and one of the questions I asked on the exam was, what is the difference between the experience of believers and unbelievers in life and at death? And there was a freshman girl in that class that gave an answer that was truly profound and has always stuck with me. She said, all of the pain in this world is the closest we will ever get to hell. And all of the happiness in the world is the closest that an unbeliever will ever get to heaven. And it stuck with me because this explanation put all of our suffering into this proper perspective. Our pains are very real. Yet as miserable as these are in our lives at times, they're certainly the worst that we as Christians will ever face. Now I think it's, it's worth noting that we here in the United States don't always relate to suffering real well. Our lives are, are so great that we might think it's wonderful the way it is. I, I just want it to continue just like it is right now. We almost need to understand this from, from the opposite angle. The joy, the, the pleasure, the, the peace that we experience at this present time are, are also not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. When I first learned as a young Christian that Jesus might come back soon, I was honestly bothered by that. I silently thought to myself, I, I hope Jesus comes after I've been married, after I've experienced all the good things in life that I want to experience. You know, come when I'm old and falling apart. Don't come now. It's getting closer and closer to that time. That sentiment, though, comes from too low of an understanding of, of what the return of, of our king will accomplish. Or as the text says, as, as what God will reveal. Namely, all the glorious joys and pleasures of eternity with God. Now in verses 19 to 22, we, we see that creation is being personified. That's when an animal or plant or an object is spoken of as having human-like quality, something like the wind whispered. Now follow along as I read verses 19 through 22. You'll, you'll see this. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Remember, all of creation, not just man and woman, are under the curse since sin entered the world. Verse 20 said, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Futility is to say that the creation is, is damaged. It's, it's broken. And the reason it says that creation was not subjected willingly is to point out that the creation didn't sin. Man did. Creation suffers because of our sin. Uh, we're told that the creation was subjected that's to say that it was made to obey in a, a different way by someone. And it honestly sounds like the work of Satan before you look at the details here because it says creation was subjected how? In hope. Well, Satan does not subject anything or anyone in hope. It's God who subjected creation. And the hope is this future redemption. As the creation is personified, we're told that it waits with eager longing. 
These Greek words are, are beautiful. They carry this idea of craning of the neck or, or straining forward. You can picture this almost as a scene in a movie where there's a woman waiting to hear those words, I love you. And you can see that's where this conversation is going. And, and she leans forward on the edge of her seat and her eyes are wide and her neck stretched out, excited to really hear these words that she can see are, are about to be said. Well, here the text speaks of creation. In verse 23, the, the same idea speaks about you and I as we await our adoption. That's the picture. You can, we can see it coming. We expect it, but it's not happened yet, and we are eagerly anticipating this. In verse 21, we learn that even the creation will be redeemed. It will be set free from decay and corruption. It says the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Don't forget, the Garden of Eden was a paradise. It was productive, producing fruit of all sorts. And in Genesis 3, 17 through 19, we see that even the creation is cursed, as we mentioned before. There it reads, And to Adam God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. We've witnessed, even in our lifetime, the brokenness of creation, the destructive forces of nature in a fallen world. Tsunamis and tornadoes and droughts and hurricanes and floods and earthquakes. We've also seen our our culture contribute to this play. I grew up in, in Houston, Texas. It's one of the largest cities in the country, and every morning if you drive downtown, it feels like you're going through fog, but it's not fog. It's exhaust and smoke. We call it smog, things from industrial production. And as a a quick point of application, we as Christians should care about the creation. Not because we need or expect it to last forever, but because we need it to last until Christ returns. I like this robe I'm wearing. It was a hand-me-down from Redeemer in Overland Park. We don't need it to last forever, but we take good care of it because it's been given to us to use wisely, and we need it to last for a period of time. This is not to say we we need to go all tree hugger. That's not what I'm saying. But as we seek to be good stewards of of God's gift, the way we handle things, what actually causes damage to creation is certainly up to debate. That's not the point here. But whether we care or not about creation really shouldn't be up for debate. Verse 22 continues to personify creation. Listen as I read it. It says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. No one, to my knowledge, loves the act or experience of childbirth. No one says, you know, I I wish I could schedule to give birth every Saturday morning. I don't think so. I've never heard that. And no one says that because it hurts. The image here is, is childbirth because childbirth is painful. But it's the, the hope of, of what the struggle ends with that makes it bearable. A newborn child. Can you imagine for a moment the creation set free from the corruption of sin? 
What a beautiful paradise it will be. Christian, at the return of our, our King, Jesus Christ, you will do more than imagine this. We'll actually get to see this with our own eyes. We'll actually experience the creation in the way that God intended it to be. In verse 23, the focus changes from general creation to man and woman. Romans 8, 23 reads, And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the creation, grown inwardly as we await the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Like I said, we too groan. That's that expectant, leaning forward, joyful anticipation of what we know is coming. Uh, these sentiments are repeated in 2 Corinthians 5, 2, where, where Paul writes, For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. There our, our current body is compared to a tent, which is this temporary dwelling place. And our future glorified bodies are compared to a, a dwelling, a permanent place to live. Here we learn that we already have the, the first fruits of the Spirit. We know that. We, we have to varying degrees what we see in Galatians 5.22, the list of, of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And our text here says, we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. This is where we get the sense of the already not yet in Scripture. We are already God's children in the sense that we're justified. God sees us as righteous because of Jesus. We are already members of, of God's family. But we've not experienced this fully. It's kind of like when you're walking towards a concert and, and you're still in the hallway outside the theater and you're, you're inside the venue. Uh, you have a right to be in that place, you, but you won't experience the concert fully until you really get into the theater, into your seats. Uh, we're not yet experienced the full inheritance that we will receive as sons of God. Sons, because the sons receive the inheritance in this culture. What we long still to receive is, is perfect holiness. Here it says, redemption of our bodies, just as the creation will one day be as God intended, so will our bodies. We will be rescued from the effects of sin and, and death. If, if we've died, our bodies will be raised from the dead. And I know that sounds absolutely crazy at times to us. And really that leads us to a number of questions. What if our bodies were, were burned to ashes? What if we've decayed to dust? How will ashes or dirt be raised? And, and the answer is, I don't know. But God made Adam out of dirt. He can certainly put us together from dirt or, or from ash as, as well. In Philippians 3, 20 through 21, we learn that our bodies will be like Jesus' glorious body. It says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Will we all look the same as each other? I don't know. Are we going to glow? I mean, these are the kind of questions that come to mind at times. Will we glow? And, and honestly, I expect because the word glorify carries with it this idea of light. And, and if you think about the Mount of Transfiguration, I, I think and I think, yeah, we probably will. But I don't know that. You know, the important questions, though, will we look like supermodels? I know that would be cool. I don't know. The concept of, of human beauty has changed throughout history. I, I know we'll be beautiful. We'll, we'll also have something that no human 
since the garden has had. And, and that's the perfect ability to actually see beauty. The last two verses of our text speak about our hope. Verses 24 and 25 read, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Hope is a major part of the Christian life. We hope in what we cannot see, but what we have been told is indeed coming. We hope expectantly in the return, for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And like I said, there's much we don't know because God's only revealed to us in Scripture small bits of this. And so I don't know if we're going to play baseball. I don't know if we're going to build things. I don't know if we're going to, to sing only hymns or, or if we're still going to use the restroom when this happens. There are some things we do know, though, things that God has revealed to us. We'll have glorified bodies. This also means our, our, our mental state will be perfect. We're no longer going to face depression. We're no longer going to even be tempted to sin. Your struggles against lust and greed and anger and gossip and vanity and jealousy will all be over. No more fears, no more tears. And there's something else that we know for sure. Jesus will be there. He's going to be on the throne ruling and we're going to dwell with him in his kingdom. Christian, you might be excited about your, your relatives, your friends who are, who are there and the reuniting, and, and that's good, that's okay. But that is nothing compared to the fact that Jesus Christ himself will be there with us. It's an experience that we've yet to experience in that way. The one who became a man for us, the one who died for us, the one who prepares for us a, a place. The one who has loved you more than you can possibly understand will be there. So Christians, groan. Lean forward in life. Stretch out your neck. Open wide your eyes and anticipate the coming of our glorious King who comes to set all things right, to make all things new. One last Point of application. If you're like me, you might be asking yourself, well, what do we do while we hope with expectation? And the simple answer is, there's a reason that Jesus has not returned yet. And so you live the Christian life he's, he's given us to live. We gather together to worship. We continue to worship him throughout the week. We, we speak of our Savior to all who are listening. We, we practice what is often referred to as the third use of the law. Let me explain that. The, the law that God has given in his word actually serves three purposes. The first use of the law is to convict us of sin. It shows us what God expects and, and thus reveals to us just how bad we have failed to keep it. It shows us just how desperately we need a Savior. And the second use of the law is often called the civil use of the law. It's the way the law of God is often incorporated into governments and civilization law that forbids stealing and murdering people and things of that nature for, for all citizens, whether they be believers or not, whether they acknowledge God exists or not. And then the third use of the law. It's the law as, as a guide for Christians to live out the good works. Ephesians 2 tells us that God beforehand that for us to do. In this sense, the law tells us as children of God who now live by the Spirit, what will please our Heavenly Father? Uh, Kevin DeYoung 
explains the third use of the law like this. He says, well, we are not under the law in the sense that we are condemned by the law or bound to the old covenant of Moses. We are under the law insofar as we are still obligated to obey our Lord in every expression of his will for our life. That's what we see in, in Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, awaiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So what I mean is that while we wait, we don't just sit here twiddling our thumbs. We we don't just pursue our own pleasure either. We, we seek to live lives that are pleasing to our Heavenly Father. We seek God in Scripture and prayer, and we seek to obey the great commandment to love God. We show kindness and care for our neighbors and community, both believers and unbelievers, as we pursue obedience to the second commandment, to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. We live lives as those who, as Titus 2 says, are zealous for good works not as a means to salvation, not as an attempt to pay God back for the salvation he has given us, but as a response to the work of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Now before we close, let me remind you again, Christian, you have reason to hope. You've been chosen by God to believe in Christ. You have been loved by God so much so that he sent Jesus to die on the cross for your sin. You have an eternal life to look forward to. You have a perfect body that you will dwell in. You have a home in the kingdom of God. You are a genuine child of God. The day is coming when you will no longer be tempted to sin. You will also no longer feel pain or experience tears of sadness. You will get to live in the physical presence of Jesus Christ, our glorious King forever and ever. So take time in the, in the coming days to, to stop and imagine what that will be like. Let it encourage you through times of suffering, through times of joy. Let this truth sustain you as we look forward to the glorious coming of our Lord Jesus Christ.